I'd like to have us open to our text for this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26, Galatians uh, chapter 5, 13 through 26, and that's on page 946 if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews. We're continuing a sermon series looking at the intersection of faith and politics here at Ivanrest Church. And as I've said repeatedly throughout this series, I'll say it again, I am not going to tell you how to vote. We are not going to get into specific pieces of legislation or judicial decision making. I am neither a lawyer or a political scientist or a politician. And so I will not tell you any of those things. Instead, as a pastor, my job is to help us think Christianly about how we can engage in all the different areas of our lives in a Christ-like and Christian way. And so that's what we're seeking to do in this series as well. And we'll continue that this morning. Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. And the Apostle Paul writes this to the Galatian church back then, as well as to us as Christian believers in the church today. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit then, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, about a year or so ago, a friend of mine, uh, he's actually a state senator back in Wisconsin, sent me an article by political commentator David French. The article was a, a series of reflections on Christian speaker and teacher Beth Moore's departure from the Southern Baptist Convention. French began his article by writing, It is not often that a single person's decision to leave a Christian denomination dominates the pages of Christianity Today, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. But when that person is Beth Moore, one of America's most popular Bible teachers, and she's leaving the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, that attention is justified. Now, in case uh, you aren't familiar with Beth Moore, she's one of the most recognizable names in American evangelical Christianity. A longtime and highly regarded Bible teacher, Moore has filled arenas and reached millions with her speaking tours and her widely published Bible studies. For years, Moore's popularity and respect across denominational lines was unparalleled. Christians everywhere, especially Christian women, loved her. Until 
that is, in 2016. That's because in 2016, Beth Moore became one of the few high-profile evangelical leaders to criticize then-candidate for president, Donald Trump. Now, I'm not really going to get into Beth Moore's criticisms of President Trump. If you're interested, you can go and read any of the countless news stories that came out at the time or when she announced her departure from the SBC. I don't know what you think about Beth Moore. I don't know what you think about Donald Trump. And that's fine, because that's not really our point or our focus for this morning. What is our focus for this morning is the kind of treatment Beth Moore received because of her criticism of President Trump. To put it lightly, it wasn't pretty. As French wrote in his article, you can go down entire YouTube rabbit holes featuring video after video of Christian critics attacking Beth Moore in sneering and condescending terms. The online abuse has been astounding. Critics dissected her public statements syllable by syllable and fired missile after missile from their theological and ideological citadels. The message was simple. Beth Moore is wrong. The gloves are off. What really struck me in reading that article uh, is that French uh, points out that it wasn't just people who disagreed with Beth Moore politically who went after her, which, by the way, from what I can tell, she actually holds mostly conservative Republican positions. It was instead that many of the people who went after her were fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. French reflects on that, and at the end of the piece, he writes this. Concluding the article, he says, there are many reasons why people leave a church. Some reasons are good, some are not. But it's a singular tragedy when a person is hated right out the front door. I grieve for the hatred Beth Moore endured. I grieve for the steep and exhausting emotional cost paid by those on all sides of our ideological divide who speak in good faith from the heart and face not, disrespect, not respectful disagreement, but instead self-righteous cruelty in return. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Human beings need forgiveness and kindness like we need oxygen. A nation devoid of grace impoverishes its people. A church devoid of grace, though, rebukes the cross. French appropriately titled his article, Cruelty is Apostasy. Apostasy is a bit of an old word. We don't really use it much anymore these days. But it means abandonment of the faith. And that's what French is saying. To be cruel is to be apostate. To be cruel to other people is to abandon the faith. To be cruel, in other words, is to cease to be Christian. And that's my thesis this morning. That's my main point. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, take that away, okay? Christians cannot claim to be Christian and be cruel. Those two things simply cannot coexist. Cruelty and Christ-likeness are incompatible with each other. At least that's what our passage for this morning says. Uh, this is probably one of the most well-known passages in Scripture because it contains the famous fruit of the Spirit list here in Galatians 5. What's a little less well-known, though, is that the fruit of the Spirit isn't the only list of things that Paul offers us here in this passage. He lists the fruit of the Spirit, yes, but just before it, he includes another list. The not quite as famous or quite as popular list of the acts of the flesh. 
We'll get into this more in a little bit, but the fruit of the Spirit list outlines the kind of character that we are called to have as Christians, while the acts of the flesh list just before it outlines the kind of character we are not called to have as Christian believers. And the reason that Paul includes both of those lists here in this passage is actually to pit them against each other. He's using them as foils for each other. He wants them, these two lists to contrast with each other so that he can make clear the change, the shift, the transformation in theological terms, the sanctification that takes place in a believer's life when we come to know, enter into a relationship with, and become disciples of Jesus Christ. Put simply, this first list that Paul includes here, the acts of the flesh, describes what we as human beings are like pre or before we encounter Jesus Christ. And then that second list, the fruit of the Spirit, describes what we are like, or at least what we should be like as Christians, post or after we encounter Jesus Christ. And to explain how that all works, Paul starts things off in this text by, by talking about something that we're all familiar with. He starts by talking about a concept and an idea, a word that we all know and understand. That's because he starts things off in this passage by talking about the notion, the concept, the idea of freedom. In verse 13 here, Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Now again, that's a word we're familiar with, right? We love that word in North American society. In fact, sometimes I think we love that word so much that we don't even really know what it means anymore. It's like Mel Gibson just yelling it out randomly in the movie Braveheart. Yeah, you seen that? Freedom, and he throws a sword. Um, I wonder if we really know what that word means, though, because we talk about it so much, or at least I wonder if we know what it means biblically. You see, the Bible defines freedom very differently than we do as North Americans today. You see, we think of freedom these days as sort of the Enlightenment-descended Western culture version that we've come to believe in our society. We think of it as the absence or removal of restraint. That's the Western cultural view of freedom. Being free these days means being free from things. It means that there is nothing and no one holding you back. You can live however you want, do whatever you want, and be whoever you want because there's nothing to limit you or tell you to stop. That's our understanding of freedom in our society and culture. I'm a free person living in a free country with freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of religion, and freedom with everything else too. And so as a result, I can do what I want, go what I want, where I want, think what I want, and say what I want, and no one can tell me anything different. That's freedom. Or at least that's the Western cultural version of freedom. It's freedom from things. Freedom from restraint, freedom from limits, freedom from anyone or anything telling you what you can or can't do. And yet, while that might be how we think and talk about freedom today, it's not how scripture talks about freedom. Or at least it's not the primary way scripture talks about freedom. You see, regardless of where you are in the Bible, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it doesn't really matter. The Bible doesn't first and foremost define freedom as what we're free from. That's part of the biblical concept of freedom, but it's not the whole. Instead, contrary to our tendencies these days, the Bible is far more interested in talking about not what we're free from, but what we are free for. Think about it this way. Let's say you go over to a friend's house and they say to you, feel free to make yourself at home. 
What kind of freedom are they talking about there? Well, they're not talking about freedom from, right? They're not telling you to free yourself from their house, to run outside and free yourself from its confines, to get away from their house and be free from their house. Instead, they're talking about the biblical idea of freedom for. They're telling you that you are free for the enjoyment of their house, for its comforts and warmth, for its safety and structure. That's biblical freedom. Asking the question, not just what have I been freed from, but what have I been freed for? What am I freed not just not to do, but to do? And that's the kind of freedom Paul is talking about here in this passage too. Certainly there are some things that he tells us we've been freed from. Again, that's part of the biblical definition of freedom. As Paul writes here at the beginning of verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You've been freed from the flesh. But then in the very next breath, Paul tells us what we've been freed for. He writes, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Freedom from, yes, but that's never where it ends in Scripture. There's freedom for, too. And so with that in mind, let's go back to these two lists that Paul offers here. The list of the acts of the flesh and the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists the acts of the flesh in verses 16 through 21. He writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he details the acts of the flesh. He writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is doing there in the simplest of terms, is he's giving us a list of of the sorts of things that we as Christian believers have been freed from in Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul's theology of sin is, is that of slavery. Go read Romans 6 sometime. In Paul's mind, before we were liberated by Christ, we were actually enslaved to our sin. He tells us that we are captives to it. We are bound up and tied to it with no way to let go of it or get rid of it. But now, Paul tells us, we have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been set free by Christ. And so as a result, we have been set free from our sin. And that's what Paul is trying to illustrate here. He's offering us a list of the kinds of things that we have been set free from as believers in Jesus Christ. There are certainly more. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. All Paul is trying to say is these are the kinds of things you have been freed from as somebody in Jesus Christ. You are not to go back to them. You are not to indulge in them. You are not to keep living as if you're still enslaved to them because you're not. You've been set free from them. Now, there's certainly a lot we could talk about here, right? Paul includes a laundry list of items in this uh, list of the acts of the flesh. But for our purposes this morning, in the context of this series, in the context of this sermon, I really just want to talk about the ones that I see popping up all too regularly, I might add, in our political process and discourse. And by the way, I'm not just seeing this from people out there in the broader culture. I'm seeing it from people in the church, Christians as well. It's really that middle set 
of the acts of the flesh. Paul writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. And then here's the, one, the ones that we're focusing on this morning. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. I'll be honest, part of why I love scripture, in fact, part of why I'm a Christian, is because of the Bible's uncanny ability to still speak to us today as if it was written for us today. I mean, how well does that describe our current cultural and political climate at the moment? Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, check, 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 and check. That's pretty much politics in a nutshell, isn't it? To put it simply, we have become callous, cold-hearted, and cruel as a culture in our political engagement, content not just to defeat our opponents and those we disagree with, but destroy them. And it's not just the candidates either. This is important. It exists in the candidates that we see, but we don't get to pin this all on them because certainly there are many candidates these days, maybe even most, making an art out of how to attack and demean other people. But the rest of us participate in this process too. Like we talked about last week, we might write cruel things on social media. We say cruel things in our friend groups and if and when we come across those we differ with in person, we might say or act in cruel ways face to face with them. The fact is, we as a culture have become all too willing these days to engage in our age of outrage. That's another little plug for Ed Stetzer's book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. It's well worth the read. And that's the case regardless of what side of the political divide we're on. That's the culture we live in these days. And because it's the culture we live in, it's the water we swim in. And because it's the water we swim in, it's starting to seep into us even as Christ followers and causing us to live in ways that bear no resemblance to the kind of people we have been freed to be in Jesus Christ. Just as an example, and it's not from our church, so don't go trying to figure out who it is. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of months ago. He attends the CRC church, but he's also leaving the CRC church. And the reason he's leaving the CRC church is because of what happened at our annual synod this past year. Actually, to be more precise, he's leaving because of what's happened to him as a result of what happened at our annual synod this past year. Now, I think most of you probably already know this about me, but I, because I've referenced this a few times from the pulpit before, but I hold to a traditional biblical position on gender and sexuality. I didn't always, but I do now. That's a story and a sermon for another day, maybe. For today's sermon, though, what you need to know is that my friend disagrees with me. He believes that the Bible allows space for monogamous, same-sex, married relationships in the church. And I'll just say, by the way, that I have many friends and family members who believe that. They either identify as LGBTQ plus themselves or they're allies of those who do, and yet we're still friends. And this friend is still my friend because he knows that even though we disagree, our family loves him. He knows that our family loves him because he has a regular spot at our dinner table. He knows that our family loves him because he gets invitations to our holiday parties. He knows that we love him because if something were to happen to Sarah and me, he's one of the members of the group of people that we've asked to care for our children. 
In short, he knows that we love him because he's part of our family. And as part of our family, he knows that our love is not conditional on whether he thinks, believes, or lives the same way that we do. The problem, though, is that my friend has experienced many Christians who don't love him. In fact, he's experienced many Christians who have told him that they cannot love him. As he told me after Synod, I've experienced more hate and unkindness in the months since Synod than I've ever experienced at any other point in my life. And it's been from Christians. It's been from Christians in the CRC. And that's why I'm leaving the CRC. Now again, right or wrong on sexuality, and I know we have different opinions in the room on that, that is wrong. It is wrong to hate people like that. It is wrong to treat them with that kind of disdain and disgust. It is wrong, as David French says in his article, to hate people out the front door of the church. As Christians, we are simply not allowed to be like that. In fact, Paul tells us here that we have been set free from being like that. It's simply not part of who we're supposed to be anymore. We are called to be free from that kind of hatred, free from that kind of discord, free from that kind of rage and dissension and faction. Those are the acts of the flesh, and we have been set free from the acts of the flesh. So we are no longer to engage in the acts of the flesh, whether we're talking about church disagreements, political disagreements, or any other kind of disagreement either. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 40, What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? That's the command, you shall not murder. And the catechism answers, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Then the next question and answer, 106, asks, does this commandment refer only to murder? And again, the catechism answers, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. This is where we get the pushback though, right? Because we might say, what if they deserve it? What if they're wrong? What if they're not just wrong, but they're evil? And what if they're not just evil in general, but they're actually evil towards us? Doesn't matter. The Bible tells us to turn the other cheek. That's actually Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus tells us there that just because someone does something we don't like doesn't mean that we get to do it back to them. In fact, Jesus tells us that when someone does something to us that we don't like, we shouldn't do it back to them. As Jesus says later in the sermon, in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Paul echoes that in our passage this morning as well. He says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus tells us that includes even our enemies. As he says in another part of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? What Jesus is saying there is that everyone loves those who loves them. 
Everyone loves those who love them. That's not different. That's not special. It's not even hard. It's just normal. What's truly loving, Jesus tells us, what truly makes us God's children, and what truly provides a light and a witness to the world is when Christians love those who don't love us. When Christians love us, those who don't treat us well. When Christians love those, in fact, who far from liking and loving us might even be doing everything in their power to destroy us. That's what shows we're truly children of God. If we love those who treat us like that. Which gets us back to Galatians 5. Because that's actually the first thing Paul lists. Not that we're free from, but that we're free for. It's love. In verses 22 and 23, he writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what we've been freed for. We've been freed from the acts of the flesh, from hatred, from discord, from jealousy, from fits of rage, and all the rest. And what have we been freed for? We've been freed for love, for joy, for peace, for patience, for kindness, for goodness, for faithfulness, for gentleness, and for self-control. As the Catechism says in its wrap-up of Lord's Day 40, question and answer 107, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way, any of the ways that the last two questions have listed? And the answer is no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. That's who we are as Christians. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we're called to be. That's who we have been freed to be as people in Jesus Christ. We are people freed from the acts of the flesh, freed from living like the rest of the world, freed from treating our enemies like they're our enemies, and instead we are people freed for the fruit of the Spirit, freed for love, freed for joy, freed for peace and all the rest. And we are freed for all those things, not just with those we like and love and see eye to eye with, but with all those we don't as well. Just as a thought experiment, what do you think the church would look like if we actually did that? If we actually lived that way? What kind of message do you think that would send? What kind of witness would it be for all those on the outside of the church looking in? to see us living and loving, not like everyone else, but like we're called to be in Jesus Christ? What if when the world is out there screaming at us and telling us that we're wrong and ignorant and stupid, what if instead of screaming all that back at them, which unfortunately is what many non-Christians have grown accustomed to expect, what if instead we were to talk to them, treat them, and even serve them with the love that we are called to exhibit in Jesus Christ? What kind of witness do you think that would provide? What kind of message would it send? And what kind of doors do you think it would open in people's hearts 
including those who have rejected the gospel, to maybe reconsider it once again. I could be wrong, but I think it would provide a pretty radical witness. I think that would be really hard for people to argue with. And I think that maybe, just maybe, it might make some people who have sworn off this whole Christian thing reconsider whether maybe the gospel is for them too. We are called to love those we disagree with. We are called to love our opponents. We are called to even love our enemies. That goes for our politics. It goes for our church in fighting and debates. And it goes for every other arena that we exist in as well. After all, my friends, that is how God first loved us. We need to remember that we turned our backs on him. We rebelled against him. We treated God with hatred, jealousy, discord, and fits of rage. In short, we turned ourselves into his enemies. And as a result, God would have been entirely justified if he just allowed us to go on our way. But he didn't. Instead, he loved us. In fact, he sent his son, his own son, to die for us. And then he rose to new life so that we could have new life too. We call that the gospel. It's the good news that has set us free. It set us free from the acts of the flesh and everything else like them. And it set us free for the fruit of the spirit and everything like that. And so let's live as people who are cultivating that fruit in our lives, in our interactions with others. Whether they're our friends, our opponents, our enemies, or anyone else. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we, we are not capable of being the people you have called us to be. We are so warped and twisted by our sin that it is not possible. We cannot try though we might live how you created us. But you have given us your grace. You have saved and transformed us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And you have given us your Holy Spirit to cultivate the kind of fruitful character within us that you have called us to exhibit in this world. So let us walk in step with the Spirit, so that we can live as the people you have called us to be. We pray this in your name.